right, so the children can go on out at this time with Mrs. Leonard to Children's Church. And the young at heart, please take your Bibles, open up to Daniel chapter 5. As you uh, came in today, how many of you noticed the footprints on the sidewalk? All right, so that was from Joshua 1.3 out of our children's Sunday school class, God's promise to uh, Moses and Joshua, wherever the sole of your foot treads, that land I will give to you as I promised my servant Moses. And so they claimed it, and uh, one young uh, child just had to claim the post. So it was Spider-Man. He was walking up the side of the post, all right? So that was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, so that's what that was all about. And uh, pray for Calvary Christian School. It gets started on the 29th, so that's just a couple of weeks out. And so we're praying for just a few more students to enroll. So that could be a prayer request that you pray for this week. Now, um, the Mattishes are on vacation today, so Jeff took over in Sunday school. So pray that they'll have a, a great and relaxing time. I know Janine um, had a back fusion uh, this week. She fell and uh, broke her back. Uh, I think it was L1. And I had that fused together this week, and that surgery was successful. And then on a happier note, um, Diane and Joe uh, had their baby girl, Hannah, this week. And so uh, congratulations to them, healthy little girl. And uh, so they're proud uh, parents and also the proud big brothers. To, to show off pictures of their little sister at this time anyway. All right, Daniel chapter 5. All right, glasses, here they are. How many have ever heard the expression handwriting on the wall? Did you know that comes from Daniel chapter 5? All right. So there are many expressions that we have in our English language that are actually right from the Bible, and uh, we don't know where they are, but that is in this story today. So why don't we just uh, do this? Why don't we read just a few verses, and then uh, we'll make a few comments, and then we'll read another section, make a few comments, and, and just keep going, alternating back and forth. Now, the first word is Belshazzar. Uh, the king, that is not Daniel. Now, remember, Daniel has a Babylonian name that sounds somewhat similar to this. That's Belteshazzar. But this is Belshazzar, the king. He has uh, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Now, between chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's 20 years at least of time passage that happened here. And Nebuchadnezzar has passed away, and his grandson has become the king. Uh, his son uh, reigned for a few months, and then he was assassinated by his brother-in-law. Then his brother-in-law went out to battle and was killed. And uh, then other people uh, vied for the throne. And eventually, this uh, man here by the name of Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, but then... Um, what ended up happening here was Belshazzar is the grandson through one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. And another king that goes down in secular history by the name of Nabonidus uh, is the father of Belshazzar. And this is where liberal critics of the Bible thought they had a bone to chew on. Uh, with God saying, ha ha, look at the mistake here in the Bible. Uh, Belshazzar was not the king when Babylon fell. We know from the writings that it was Nabonidus. And so the Bible's wrong. Well, 
that's actually what they thought for centuries. But then they dug around long enough and they found Belshazzar's name and he was co-regent at the same time as his father. And he was an inept leader who, he was young, he liked to party, and we're gonna see he has a party. And his father uh, liked to go out in war, in battle. And so as the Persians attack the city in the story, Nabonidus is outside fighting and he gets defeated and he flees and leaves his inept son inside the, the city walls and the palace uh, and it falls to the Medes and the Persians. And so God brings to fulfillment his promises that another kingdom would succeed Nebuchadnezzar, who in Daniel chapter 2 was that uh, image and the dream of the head of gold. And now we're going to see a transition to the next kingdom within the book of Daniel, which is the Medes and the Persians, which is the chest and the arms of silver that the king dreamed about earlier, uh, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. So let's just pick this up. Uh, it's an exciting narrative, and I just hope that you'll follow along here today. Belshazzar the king made a great feast of a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which is in Jerusalem, that the king and his prince, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princess, his wives and his concubines, drank in them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver and of brass and of iron, of wood and of stone. All right, so we'll just stop there and just share a few historical things taking place here. Now, when it says that Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, um, that's a very generic word that can mean son, grandson, uh, son-in-law, actually. So it's not saying that he's the son of Nebuchadnezzar directly, right, father and then son, but grandson qualifies as son. Uh, that's one thing you need to know. The other thing that's happening here is uh, why does Belshazzar want all of the vessels brought in uh, to the banqueting hall that were from the temple in Jerusalem. Well, his father, Nabonidus, was uh, an idolater. He loved idols. And uh, what he did was he went around the surrounding villages and he collected all of their gods, stripped them of their household deities, and they became quite upset at their king for taking their gods. Well, Nabonidus took all the gods into the city of Babylon thinking all these gods surely will protect us, all right? So his rabbit's foot, his lucky charm, right? Well, to top that off then, uh, Belshazzar says, well, I can do that too. So our gods are greater than the gods of our enemies, so let me demonstrate that. In the reserve treasury, we have the vessels of this puny little god of the Jews that we conquered under my grandfather many, many years ago, why don't we just show the, the power of the Babylonian gods and let's bring them out and let's have a feast and I will encourage and strengthen my nobles and my lords that are banqueting with me. And by the way, they've uh, excavated the palace grounds uh, there in Babylon and sure enough, there's large rooms big enough to hold not just a thousand but thousands of people. And uh, 
they know that they have the capacity to do this. So he's thinking, all right, well, if we need the power of the gods to be on our side, let, let's grab these vessels too. So they're having a drunken party, but outside the city walls at this very time, this very night, what is happening is the Medes and the Persians are surrounding the city. They actually have been there for weeks, and they've been digging in the sand a channel that will divert the Euphrates River away from the city. And when there is no river, the gates are not going all the way to the bottom of the riverbed. Then the Medes and the Persian army will go underneath the city gates while everybody is stone drunk and not watching and be able to conquer the city. And so that's what we have going on in our story. But that's why they're, they're drinking uh, from these vessels. It's a sign of, of Babylonian god power, so to speak. And it will encourage God has done it in the past. Their gods have done it in the past. So he'll do it again for us. Or the gods will do it again for us. And so they bring out these vessels. All right, verse 5. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the uh, plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And so that's the handwriting on the wall. Verse 6, Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his uh, loins were loosed, and his knees smote against one another. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be made what? Third ruler in the kingdom. Well, why not second? Well, because Belshazzar is second king. All right? And then Nabonidus is first king, co-regents. So he couldn't have been second. So historically, the Bible is accurate. So he would uh, get wealth and this beautiful chain around his neck and be promoted. Then came in all the king's wise men, uh, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts be troubled thee nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in thy days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods was found in him, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians and the astrologers, Chaldeans and the soothsayers. For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding and interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts, were found in this same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show thee the interpretation. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel, which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry? I have even heard of thee, that the Spirit of gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. And now the wise men and the astrologers have brought uh, in before me that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof, but they could not show the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of thee, that thou canst make interpretations, dissolve doubts. Now if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet 
have a chain of gold about thy neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. So the title of the message is Daniel's Obscurity. During this 20 to 30 years of passage between chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's been a rapid succession of kings. Um, and Daniel has fallen off in usefulness or popularity or acceptance and just kind of been pushed to the side during all of this transition of power. But the queen mother uh, remembers, oh, in Nebuchadnezzar's day, there was this man by the name of Daniel, and he had special ability. I'm going to go make a recommendation to the king that he call him in. And so the Belshazzar uh, says, art, you that, art thou that Daniel? Are you the one that can do this? I've heard of you. All right? Now, obviously, he's not relying on him. So Daniel has fallen into obscurity. But Daniel will have a message. Well, God has the message. Daniel is just interpreting it for the king. A message of justice. And so we'll spend a lot of time today looking at the nature and the character of God as being a just God. Now, we sang today, holy, holy, holy. Uh, That's God's chief attribute. Uh, Holiness is God's singularity. There's no one else like him. He's high and lifted up. He's without sin. So God is holy. We're supposed to be holy. But God is also just, and we're going to learn about the justice of God today through this narrative, through this story. And so, in the sovereign judgment of God, uh, God will usher in a new kingdom, all according to his plan. So, in the story, we're going to see both the nation and a pagan king that are judged. Now, last week, I tried to show you um, this slide, right, that kind of outlines for you where the, the story of Daniel goes, and maybe I didn't cover that very well, so let me take just a few minutes to do that before we actually jump into the message. The reason why I want to do this, it will help you when you read your Bibles to understand a literary technique, and if you understand the literary technique that God is doing, then you'll understand where God is putting the emphasis, I mean the emphasis, all right, and uh, you'll be able to understand Uh, and better interpret your Bible if you know this literary technique. And so last week what I showed you was the ABC CBA, all right? And so chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. So look at the A and the A, four kingdoms and a fifth kingdom in chapter 2. Look at the bottom line, four kingdoms and a fifth kingdom, chapter 7. So it ends up where it started. And so this is a literary technique called a chiasm. It's a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. All right, so how about this statement? You can finish it for me. When the going gets tough, that's a chiasm. All right, it's A, B, B, A. All right. Uh, How about John F. Kennedy's famous quip? Ask not what your country can do for you, but that's A-B-B-A. That's a chiasm, all right? And so this is all throughout Scripture. It's a literary technique so that when you see it and recognize it, you'll know where the emphasis is and be able to understand what really is important in a text. And so it happens with individual words. 
It happens with phrases and sayings. It happens in verses. It happens in chapters. And it happens at the book level. And so that's why I'm showing it to you in the book level. Now here's a couple examples of it. All right, this is Mark 2.27. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So what's the emphasis? Well, that the Sabbath was made for man. So let's try not to be self-righteous and uh, try to get caught up in all of the law. All right? uh, we're not designed that way. So here's another one. This is Joel chapter 2. Why don't you go over there for just a second? And now I know that's going to be hard to find, but it's in your Old Testament. This is uh, verses 17 through 21. All right, Joel chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. Actually, maybe I got the wrong chapter. Um, let me look here. It's chapter 3, sorry, Joel chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall be no stranger pass through her anymore. All right, so look at the screen here. Uh, verse 17 has Zion, Jerusalem is holy, uh, and no strangers will pass through her anymore. So the ideas are laid out sequentially. And then there's a blessing. This one's a little bit different. Verse 18 is the blessing. It shall come to pass in that day that the mountain shall drop down with new wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters. And the fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Verse 19, Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness. For the violence against the children of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their hand. But Judah shall dwell forever in Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord will dwell in Zion. So it ends up, the concepts are sequentially presented here. And then in reverse order, they come back with the emphasis on that God is going to dwell in the city of Zion. And what he's going to do. He's going to give it security. He's going to make it holy. So that's the emphasis that's there. So when you're reading your Bible, uh, you can come across uh, things like that. All right, so there it is in the, in the book of Daniel, listed out by chapter. Uh, four kingdoms and a fifth. Uh, three Hebrews face death for their faith. Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. Uh, Belshazzar is humbled. Daniel faces death, four kingdoms, and a fifth eternal kingdom. So that's how it's outlined. All right, so in our series, uh, we're in this. It's God's sovereignty is our security. But today I have a question for you. Are you secure in God's hands? There's a difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, his grandson. One learned to praise the true and the living God and to humble himself. The other, Belshazzar, praised the gods of gold and of silver and of wood and of stone 
and was haughty and arrogant and was humbled. He faced the handwriting. He was in the hand of God, but it was the hand of judgment. Whereas his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, he was learned to trust God. And I believe that one day we might see Nebuchadnezzar uh, in heaven, even though uh, he was a Gentile. And so what we learn from this story as we go through this is that God is going to judge the kingdom. So what we've seen in the story up to this point was the king is having this wild party. Handwriting appears on the wall. The king, he begins to shake. His knees are knocking. He asks for help with this, calls in all of his advisors. They can't do it. Calls in Daniel and says, look, if you can do this, I'll make you the third ruler. I'll make you very wealthy. We'll put this royal robe on you and you'll be famous. All right, so that's where we are. So let's pick up the story in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself, and give thy rewards to another. How would you like to say that to a king? All right, that's kind of an insult. I don't want your gifts. All right, but I'm going to go ahead and read the interpretation for you anyway. Verse 18. O thou king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would slew, uh, he slew. And whom he would uh, kept alive, uh, and whom he would set up, and whom he would put down. Verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was disposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And when he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild asses, and they fed him with the grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. And thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this, but has lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and of gold and of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, thou hast not glorified. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. Verse 25. And this is the writing that was written. Many, many tekel yusfarsfin. The interpretation of the thing. Many. God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. 
Well, that very night, Belshazzar was murdered by the Medes and the Persians. I told you the story how uh, the Persian general was outside digging in the desert sands and he diverted the Euphrates River away from the city and their army was able to go underneath the gates and of course everybody was drunk so they were able to go into the city and to conquer it and to kill the king and to bring an effective end to the Babylonian kingdom, to the Babylonian empire. The lesson here is that God is a just God. And it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And we live in a day and an age where many people question, does God really know? Does God really care? Is God really in charge? We can do whatever we want and nobody's going to stop us. Well, that's exactly how Belshazzar lived. I can do whatever I want. I'll bring in these cups, these vessels from the the God of the Jews, and we'll make fun of them. It'll be a drunken orgy, and we'll party, and we'll, we'll worship our gods and cry out for their protection, and uh, we're just going to have a grand time. We're going to laugh at the, the calamity that's outside because we are so secure. The walls of Babylon were well over 100 feet tall, some say they were 37 feet wide, wide enough to drive chariots on top. So the city seemed to be impregnable. There was no way that he could be defeated. So in his pride, he was lifted up. And God is going to humble him. And through the justice of God, we have some applications for our own life. All right, so first of all, verses 1 through 9, God's justice is in kind, or that means retributive. Um, some, have you ever heard the word retribution? All right, the word retribution means that you get paid back in kind for what you did. And so God is going to pay back this pagan king for his pride and his blasphemy, his profanity, uh, by using the holy vessels for his party. His, his drunken party and all the immorality that went along with that. And so God is going to pay him back for that. So, so confident was the king in his fortress uh, that he laughed at the invading armies. And this is the, the day and age in which we live. First Thessalonians 5.3 says this about our time period. This is how God describes us. Peace and safety, but then sudden destruction comes upon them. That's the day and age in which we live. We're so secure with all of our technology, with all of our might, we possibly cannot be defeated. There's no way. We're, we're so strong. We're so secure. And um, I've got everything I need. My, my home is filled with all kinds of goods. I, I've got a good job. I've got a really padded bank account. So why do I need God? Right? Peace and safety, security. But then sudden destruction. So these events occurred in the year 539 B.C. Um, and on that very night, uh, Belshazzar died. Now, in verse 2, uh, he's bringing in all of these vessels. But then it also talks about that they were worshiping the gods of gold and stone and bronze and so forth. Do you know what the Apostle Paul says about idols in 1 Corinthians? That behind an idol, 
is a demonic power. So when you see a little Buddha and incense burning to it, behind that is demonic power. When you go to foreign countries and you go to India and you see hundreds of thousands or millions of gods and, and incense burning to them, when you, when you see all kinds of shrines set up, uh, Shinto shrines, Buddhist shrines, uh, when you see even statuary in so-called Catholic Christian churches, there's demonic power in all of that to keep people from believing and understanding the truth. Many years ago when I was a college student, uh, we took a trip to Washington, D.C. for a missions conference, and uh, we rented Constitutional Hall, and then we had some time to do some sightseeing, so we went to the National Cathedral, and uh, I tell you what, the Holy Spirit within me was not at peace when I was in the National Cathedral because of all of the idolatry. And it was so oppressive that I had to walk out. They invited us to come into a worship service, but the idolatry was so heavy, you could just cut it with a knife. It just had that vibe about it. And I walked out, and there were a couple of other students, and we got to talking, well, why aren't you in there? Well, because I sensed this, and it's like, really? Me too. And so you can just sense that. You can know that. And so there's demonic power that is in this story trying to bring Belshazzar to destruction. But, of course, there's the sovereign power that's trying to teach him a lesson about humbling himself before the true and the living God. And so their exercise is to call upon all of these gods for protection. And there's not any God or the powers behind these idols, any spirit that's going to keep the sovereign God from getting his plan done. Do you know where history is going right now? All of the events, the current political events in the world, are marching to one central event in human history, and that is the eventual kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we're marching. So all things are getting set up for God's eventual plan. And if you will stay with us in this series, you've already seen it. Uh, the head of gold, the chest of, of silver, uh, the legs of, of, of bronze, and then the feet of, of iron and clay. And how eventually that fifth eternal kingdom comes and destroys that image and grinds it to powder. And it grows into this glorious kingdom. Well, all the kingdoms of the earth will be subjugated to the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ one day. That's where human history is going. We're going to see it again in chapter 7, a fifth eternal kingdom. So the man's hand comes and appears on the wall, um, verse 5. And Babylonian hands had seized the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem taken them out of the treasury that night and were using them to drink and to profane uh, and to worship idols. But now the hand that controls all of mankind begins to write on the wall. Many, many tekel yusfarisfin. And it so disturbs this young party animal king that immediately 
even in a state of drunken stupor, he's slapped to reality and he begins to become exceedingly fearful and he begins to shake violently and his knees are knocking together and uh, he goes pale. His color has gone out of him. He's frightened. He knows that something supernatural is happening to him and so he tries to find out through his own efforts what it is but he's not able to do that. And so God brings Daniel in to reveal to the king what the message is. You know, a lot of people know, and we're talking about the day and age in which we live, a lot of people know that things are not right. They, they can just sense that things are off, or when calamity comes to them, they know to begin to pray. But they're, they're trying to find God in their own way. And that's just the, the foolishness of, of humanity. You know, God doesn't work through human reason. God works through this book. God reveals truth to us, and then we can understand and comprehend truth. But we can't reason ourselves into truth. It has to be shown to us. And what is truth? Well, thy word is truth. And so God brings about this justice um, for profaning his vessels. And so we see that at the beginning of the story, and we see Daniel specifically mentioned when it comes to the interpretation. God is judging you for your pride because you have taken God's vessels and in pride profaned them, treating them as common drinking cups for your wild party. And so you're being punished in kind for your sins. Now, if you read very carefully Revelation chapter 20, the Bible talks about sets of books. There's one book which is called the Book of Life. And whosoever's name is not written in the Book of Life is cast into the lake of fire. So you might say, a roll call was taken on Judgment Day. And if your name's in the book of life, there is no condemnation for you. You're secure. But if your name is not in the book of life, then another set of books is opened. And it's the record of your life. So there's a divine and sovereign God who's keeping track of you. Now, not that he needs to write it down because he's omniscient and he wouldn't forget. But for testimony, for verification of the record, he writes it down. And you will be cast into hell because your name is not in the book of life. But what kind of hell? For those that have been extremely vile and wicked, I believe hell is much hotter. Now, hell is hell. But God judges and accounts for the deeds of our life. And in kind, punishment. So that's called retributive justice. So Belshazzar is judged here in kind for his sin of pride and his sin of blasphemy. 
Now, let's go down and look at verse 22, especially. Let's just take a moment to look at this one. All right, glasses disappeared. We'll just try to take a stab at it here. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart. What's the last phrase? Though thou knewest this, all of this. God's justice then, point number two, is according to knowledge. Belshazzar knew better. Have you ever known better, but you went ahead and did wrong anyway? All right, that's just human nature. Um, it just seems like that's all the more enticement, all right? The, the forbidden fruit, so to speak. And that's just what we do. Now, this young man, he knew the history of his grandfather. He, quote, knew the mental illness that ran in the family, right? Uh, he knew the story. Daniel points that out to him. And he knew what the story meant. That as my grandfather humbled himself to the Most High God and finally acknowledged that he was in control and sovereign over the affairs of men, he knew the application to the story. But yet he refused to humble himself. So the judgment is according to knowledge here in verse 22. And... You know, there's lots of things that tell us the truth and the reality of God. Psalm chapter 19, if you want to turn there, you can read verses 1 through 4 quietly on your own. But it talks about creation being a witness to the eternal power of God, His creative power. We can stand in awe at the ocean. We're overwhelmed at the scale of mountains or even redwood trees. And, and we see the great forces that, that take place on the earth. I mean, the volcano that erupted uh, late this spring down in the South Pacific, the sound waves were heard in Alaska, Right? And it has impacted weather throughout the world. And we look at the power of that volcanic eruption and we're awed. And those that are honest with themselves and honest with the facts say, there's somebody who created all of this. Maybe I should just humble myself before him. But then the nature of man is, I really don't want to know him. So I'll make my own God. And I'll refuse to know him. And that's found in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 20 and 21. Uh, but in Acts chapter 14, the apostle reasoned this way with the Greeks. As the good news of salvation in Jesus jumped from the Jewish culture to a Gentile culture... The apostle said, you know there's a God who made you. You left room for him. Because in the city of Athens, they had many religious idols set up to all kinds of gods. 
and they knew that in case they forgot one, that they had better make one to the unknown God. Just to cover their bases, right? So they didn't offend the God that they didn't know. And so the apostle starts with that. He says, to the unknown God, him I declare to you. And so creation tells us this. Our own conscience tells us that there's a God. Take your Bibles, go over to Romans chapter 2. There they are. Read with me verses 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So let's just look at verse 14 this way. When the Gentiles, when the heathen in Africa or the heathen in Hollis are sitting on his couch who ignores the Bible, in his conscience he says, I shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't do that. Where does that sense of right and wrong come from? Well, that's hardwired into human nature by God's design. Many years ago, there was a um, first contact with an Amazonian uh, jungle tribe, and this man uh, had his recorder, and he recorded the first contact uh, with this, this civilization or this tribe. You know what was recorded in the first contact? A man weeping, leaving the village, trying to make contact with the outsiders because another man had stolen his wife. And he was weeping and said, he knew better. He knew that was wrong. How do these people in the remote parts of the Amazonian jungle know that adultery is wrong? Because God has put it in their heart and in their mind. Their conscience knows better. Why do we know that murder is wrong, no matter what country you go to? Where does this come from? Well, it comes from the fact that God has created that in us. So you can look at creation. You can look at your own conscience. And your conscience will either say, Oh, you really shouldn't have done that. Or, yeah, blow it off. Do it again. All right? Unfortunately, that's the sin nature working in us. It says, blow it off, do it again. That's just the way we are. We have a sin nature. We don't commit a sin and then become a sinner. We commit a sin because we are a sinner in our very nature, in our very core. And so this is what Romans is telling us. And so the work of God, the work of the Scripture is written in their hearts. But now specifically, if you go back to read the second half of Psalm 19... You need the Word of God. The Word of God brings light. And so it is according to knowledge. Nature brings knowledge. Conscience brings knowledge. But Scripture specifically brings knowledge. You're in Romans 2. Go over to Romans 3. 
Look at verses 1 and 2. What advantage hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Here's the answer, verse 2. Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. In other words, the Jews had the Ten Commandments. That was their advantage. And they knew what the Scripture said. There is no other God. You shall have no other gods. So they had the advantage because they had the Scripture. But let me just point this out to you by way of appeal. Read your Bibles. Because God's going to hold you accountable anyway, even if you don't. So you might as well read it and then know how to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But if you go ahead and just ignore the Scripture, it's going to catch up with you. And you'll be held accountable by this book. Because there is a day coming in which he appoints the man, Jesus Christ, to be the judge. And you will be judged according to this word. So let the Bible be a light unto your path and a lamp unto your feet. Rejoice that you have the Bible. Do you remember the stories of seeing the iron curtain fall? And evangelical Christian groups going into the Iron Curtain and handing out Bibles. And people by the thousands standing in line with their hands out, their voices crying, give me a copy, give me a copy. And when they get it, they kiss it and they give it a hug. But we let ours collect dust. We set it underneath a stack of things and Sunday morning we go out the door, we get into the car, we do a last second check, <gasps> Bible, church, run back in the house, remember that we've got to look Christian, and grab our Bibles. Now I'm glad you're in a Baptist church where we preach from the Bible and that you have your Bible with you. When I was growing up, my pastor would occasionally do a Bible check. He'd say, hold up your Bibles, and I'm going to do that to you this morning. But uh, he just wanted to know, are we a people of the book or not? And so Scripture tells us of God. All right, very quickly, let's look at some other points directly from the text. Let's go down to verse 26 of Daniel chapter 5 and look at the word uh, many, many, meaning counted or appointed. So the, the justice of God is calculated, um, counted out, appointed. Hebrews 9.27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. The Marine Corps had a billboard sign down in the San Diego region that says, We judge no man, we just arrange the appointment. <laughs> All right. Well, we know that saying, prepare to meet your maker. So, we know that saying's in our culture. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from Hebrews 9, 27. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. Prepare to meet thy maker. Are you ready to meet God? Will you be like Nebuchadnezzar or will you be like Belshazzar? Are you secure in God's sovereign hand? 
are you under the handwriting of condemnation? And so it is calculated. It is, it is going to happen. It is an appointed time. Listen to Psalm 39, verse 4. Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Look, life is but a breath. Never at the age of 50 did I think I would have a stroke and lay on the floor and on the hospital bed and think, am I dying? I'm glad I didn't. But then I was at peace because I knew my Lord and Savior. But never do we think that the next hour could be our appointment day. Are you ready? Pray that God gives you that kind of understanding that you know life is short and what you do in this life, it matters. Not only is the judgment of God retributive, it's remunerative, remuneration. You get paid back for the good things you do. Now, hold on for a second. I'm not saying eternal life is a scales, all right? Your, your good outweighs your bad. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're on your way to heaven. That's the only thing that saves a person. But God does reward our work. Your labor is not in vain. God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God notices what you do and the good work that you do, and he'll reward you for that. But be ready. Psalm 37, verse 8, But the transgressor shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. Psalm 7, verse 9, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God trieth the hearts and the reins. Psalm 9, verse 7, But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. Here's where we are. We get caught up in discouragement just as the psalmist Asaph did in Psalm 73. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. I remember one day I was uh, working for the utility company as a subcontractor, and I had to go up and knock on the door of this house, and it was a narrow driveway, and there was this slope that was about 20 feet down uh, to the side of the driveway, and it was raining, maybe a little ice on the, on the driveway, and I stepped out of the truck, and I was wearing my slicker suit and my boots, and I hit a little bit of ice, and I went on my bottom, but I was on the edge of the hill, and with my slicker sloop, I just went flying down that hill, just, and I was like, Wow, what just happened? All right, it was just that quick. That's what this is talking about. The wicked are in a slippery place. In an instant, they could be before their maker. The psalmist was discouraged. He saw the fatness, the prosperity, the wealth, the fame, the ease of the life of the wicked around him. And he thought, maybe God doesn't care. And then he went into the house of God, and he saw what their end was. There is a just God. How they are brought into destruction as in a moment. The ungodly are consumed with tears. All right, very quickly, tekel, verse 27, means weighed or assessed. 
Um, and, and this is beyond just being retributive, okay? But God knows. All right, so what does Lady Justice look like? Tell me. In our legal system, what does Lady Justice look like? Blindfold on, long robe, and scales in her hands, right? Trying to portray that justice is impartial. Well, and blind, right? You only learn the facts as they're presented. Well, there's an all-knowing God who is not blind and has seen every wicked act that we've ever done has known every wicked thought that we've ever thought. He knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart. There's no escaping. The darkness and the light are alike unto him. We don't hide things when it's dark. Why is it we're afraid to go out after dark? Because the bad people get out, right? Did anybody hear a big boom at 1 o'clock this morning in Hollister? All right. I mean, I had the fan on and the noise machine and the door was shut. And I heard that boom and it woke me up. I thought somebody was trying to break in the house, you know. And so I'm walking around trying to figure out what, what, what went bump in the night. You know, I knock on my son's door. It's like, did you hear that? Yeah, Dad, I heard that too. It's like, what was it? It's something outside. Okay, well, I'm going back to bed, all right. <laughs> but um, listen, the, the, we're going to be assessed And darkness isn't going to keep anything from God. You're not going to hide anything from Him. God is able to weigh our lives. And it says here to Belshazzar, you are found wanting. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. We're all debtors to God. for his wonderful work that he did for us when he sent Jesus to die on Calvary. Jesus Christ paid our sin debt. Will you repent? That means to turn away from whatever you trust in. Will you humble yourself and accept God's verdict that you're a sinner, you can't save yourself? And that Jesus Christ died for you. He invites you to come to him. But that's a sin debt you could not pay. You're a debtor to God, but Jesus paid it for you. And he wants you to believe in him. And then our attitude after we receive God's gift is like the Apostle Paul. I'm the chiefest of sinners. I am a debtor to Christ. I owe my life to Jesus. And I want my life to show that I owe that debt and that I'm willing to pay it back and give my life to him. And then in closing, verses 28 through 31... Uh, Perez or Yusfarisvin. Now, there's not a, a, a disagreement here in these last words. Uh, one is the singular, the other is the plural, passive, present, and so forth. So it just means this your kingdom is divided and it's given away to the Persians. And so the fall of Babylon in 539 BC is a picture of the future judgment in Revelation of the symbolic Babylon, the devil's worldly system, and all Bible-believing Christians can see that the world has the handwriting on the wall. There's a just God that's going to reconcile all of these things. But blind rulers of this world continue in their pride and pleasure, 
little realizing that the Lord is coming. And so if you look at the Old Testament carefully, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, all said Babylon's coming to an end. It came to an end. They predicted it before it happened. God has predicted how the world ends. So human history really is prophecy. I call it predictive prophecy. And I can tell you the outcome. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and humble and repent, put your trust in Him, you're saved. If you don't, you're doomed. You'll face the wrath of a just God. But praise God, Jesus died for you and doesn't want you to experience that wrath. And so he poured out that wrath in Isaiah 53 on his own son. And by his stripes, you are healed. Your iniquities are forgiven. Will you today put your faith and trust in the Lord? Don't be that individual that stands before God on Judgment Day in Revelation 20. And your name is not written in the book of life. How can you know if your name's written in the book of life? Well, just simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and it's written down. Matter of fact, it's engraved on God's hand and in his heart, and he'll never forget you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So here's two possible reactions to the message today. If you're an unbeliever, I trust that God has put his fear in your heart and that you'll humble yourself and put your faith in Christ. He pleads with you to do so because he loves you so much. If you're a believer, I trust that you will find security in the fact that there is a God who is just and all of the injustice and the wrong that takes place in life will be accounted for because God measures things out. God is the keeper. God knows. And we can trust him as a...